Fleet Car Repair and Collision Service in Liberty, New York. ThalmanServiceCenter.com. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Trying to make it real compared to what? In 1738, the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist, prophesied. Benjamin counseled his readers to beware rich men who poisoned the world for gain. Benjamin's prophecy speaks to our time. Earth has grown sicker since Benjamin's day, which makes it easier now to hear his message. It may have taken more than two and a half centuries, but it seems that the world is finally beginning to catch up with the prophet's radical, far-reaching ideas through a growing environmental consciousness. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, the rights of Mother Earth and all her living things with our guest, biographer-historian Marcus Redeker. First, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Florida and Arizona are reporting sharp increases in coronavirus infections. Florida's health department is confirming more than 9,500 cases today. Arizona officials report nearly 3,600. And as Scott Bork of member station KJZZ reports from Phoenix, Arizona's largest hospital group is now activating surge capacity and mobilizing nurses from around the country. Banner Health is Arizona's largest hospital group, with 28 facilities spread across the state. Arizona's ICU and inpatient hospital bed usage have reached almost 90 percent, with numbers expected to keep rising. Dr. Marjorie Bessel is Banner's chief clinical officer. We are absolutely experiencing a surge of COVID-19 patients that are coming in for care, and we are starting to get full. They've announced plans to bring in at least 200 ICU nurses from out of state and convert other hospital floors into ICU overflow space. For NPR News, I'm Scott Bork in Phoenix. Vice President Pence is postponing two campaign events that he was planning to headline next week in Florida and Arizona because of the spikes in cases. Yesterday, Pence defended his right to hold such events. Campaign officials now say the postponement is out of an abundance of caution. Pence still plans to travel to Texas, Florida, and Arizona to meet with governors and health teams. European Union officials are finalizing a list of countries whose citizens will be allowed in as the bloc begins lifting coronavirus travel restrictions July 1st. The U.S. is not expected to make the list as new infections spike in more than a dozen states. Tourists from Russia and Turkey will also be banned. The EU says it will allow visitors from China, but only if Beijing lifts its ban on European visitors. Princeton University is dropping the name of former President Woodrow Wilson from one of its most prestigious colleges, citing Wilson's history of racist policies. NPR's Brian Mann reports this comes as the country debates how controversial historic figures should be honored. Wilson was a Democrat who served in the White House from 1913 through 1921. He pioneered some progressive policies, championing ideas that evolved into the United Nations. In 1930, Princeton named its prestigious School of Public and International Affairs in his honor. But Wilson was also notoriously racist and once praised the Ku Klux Klan. Now Princeton's trustees have voted to strip his name from the institution. University President Christopher Eisgruber said in a statement Wilson's racism was significant and consequential, even by the standards of his own time. This comes a day after President Trump signed an executive order protecting monuments that some critics view as racist. This is NPR. Russia is dismissing a report that says Moscow offered bounties to Islamic militants in Afghanistan to kill U.S. troops there. Russia calls the report nonsense and accuses U.S. intelligence of planting the story. The World Wildlife Fund is singling out Portugal as having Europe's worst wildfire record. As Alison Roberts reports from Lisbon, the group says Portugal needs to overhaul its approach to its forests. About 3% of Portugal's forests burn each year. According to WWF, that's in part due to rural depopulation, where landowners often simply aren't on hand to reduce fire risks, and also due to a decline in traditional agricultural practices, such as properly managing vegetation. 
But instead of pouring money into fighting those fires, WWF suggests the government focus on more effective measures to prevent them in the first place by enhancing the value of rural areas, making landscapes more resilient, and changing the behavior of the public. WWF says that because of climate change, wildfires are now larger and deadlier, not only in southern Europe but also across the world. For NPR News, I'm Alison Roberts in Lisbon. Coca-Cola is pausing advertising on all social media platforms for at least 30 days. The company says there's no place for hate or incendiary speech on social media. Coke says it's reassessing its advertising policies. Yesterday, Facebook announced new measures against false posts and political ads. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include EBSCO, committed to supporting researchers by introducing an ecosystem to openly connect the world's research information and output through data, tools, and services. Learn more at EBSCO.com. Marcus Redeker returns to the Janice Adams Show today. He brings with him the story of a man too long lost to us, who is, after almost 200 years, retaking his place at the pantheon of human rights activism. The last time you were here, we talked about ghosts of Amistad, and that was an extraordinary experience. And then to back it up with the fearless Benjamin Lay. Who was Benjamin Lay, and why have you chosen to write about him? Well, Janice, let me say first that it is a great pleasure to be with you again. Uh, I, too, enjoyed that previous conversation very much. And this uh, book that I've written, uh, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, is about a man from the 18th century who was one of the very first people in the world to demand a complete and total abolition of slavery everywhere. He was a Quaker. He had been a sailor. He had been a shepherd. He was an ordinary working man. And one of the purposes of this book was to try to figure out how he came to such Uh, a radical and unusual conclusion uh, about the evils of slavery two full generations before an anti-slavery movement emerged. So one of the things that's really at the heart of the book is trying to figure out where did these very radical ideas come from? How did Benjamin Lay learn to think this way? Mm -hmm. It's also a matter of some importance that Benjamin Lay was a dwarf. He was about four feet tall. Uh, He was, uh, as we call today, a a little person. He suffered a lot of discrimination uh, for that reason. Uh, People made fun of him. People scorned him. But he was completely undeterred by these things. He thought that people needed to be known for their ideas, for their principles, what they stand for. Uh, and he fought back hard against slave owners. And I, I do conclude that he is one of the most formidable and fierce opponents the institution of slavery ever had. In your book, you refer to him being a major proponent or talented in the art of the theater of apocalyptic outrage. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Benjamin was an angry man, and this was somewhat unusual because anger was not something that Quakers frequently were allowed to express in public. What he would do in order to make his points, uh, especially about slavery, but I should say not only about slavery, he had a great many radical ideas, he would act out these thoughts these principal positions in public. And I'll just give you a a couple of examples. Uh, Benjamin would always, in every Quaker meeting, make it a point to to challenge his fellow Quakers who were slave owners. Now, this is actually something uh, that your listeners may not know, but in the early phase of Quakerism in what became the United States and the American colonies in Pennsylvania, the Quaker colony, A lot of Quakers grew rich, 
And many of them did what all other rich people did in that time. They bought uh, enslaved people. Benjamin was completely convinced this was wrong. So he would do things to humiliate slave owners, to call them out in public, uh, and basically to try to divide the meeting, really literally drawing a line saying, okay, here's, here's the issue of slavery. Are you for it or, or are you against it? Which side are you on? And he would do this in meeting after meeting after meeting. And as you can imagine, these wealthy Quaker slave owners really didn't like it. They didn't like being challenged in this way. So he was actually disowned by four different Quaker congregations, um, partly because his, his ideas were just too radical, and he was uh, insistent that these slave owners were wrong. Perhaps you can read to us from the introduction? Yes, I'd be happy to, because this does, I think, illustrate very clearly how Benjamin worked, how he challenged people, how he agitated against slavery. On September 19, 1738, Benjamin Lay strode into a large gathering of Quakers in the Burlington, New Jersey meeting house for the biggest event of the Philadelphia yearly meeting. Benjamin had journeyed almost 30 miles on foot, as was his way, arriving four days earlier and subsisting on acorns and peaches only. Presiding over the gathering were John Kinsey, clerk of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, and Israel Pemberton Sr., assistant clerk, both of them leaders of the Society of Friends in the Philadelphia region and the Quaker-dominated legislature of Pennsylvania. Benjamin had a message for them and indeed for all of the assembled. Benjamin surveyed the room and took a conspicuous location. He wore a great coat, which hid a military uniform and a sword from his fellow Quakers, who back in 1660 had embraced the peace testimony, refusing all weapons and warfare. Beneath his coat, Benjamin carried a hollowed-out book with a secret compartment into which he had tucked a tied-off animal bladder filled with bright red pokeberry juice. Because Quakers had no formal minister nor church ceremony, people spoke as the Spirit moved them. Benjamin, a man of spirit, pure and unruly, waited his turn. He finally rose to address this gathering of weighty Quakers, many of whom owned African slaves. Quakers in Pennsylvania and New Jersey had grown rich on commerce, and many bought human property. To them, Benjamin delivered a chilling prophecy. He announced in a booming voice that God Almighty respects all peoples equally, rich and poor, men and women, white people and black alike. He explained that slave keeping was the greatest sin in the world and asked, how can a people who profess the golden rule keep slaves? He then threw off his great coat, revealing the military garb, the blade, and the book to his astonished co-religionists. A collective murmur filled the hall. In a rising crescendo of emotion, the prophet thundered his judgment. Thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslave their fellow creatures. He pulled out the sword, raised the book above his head, and plunged the sword through it. The people in the room gasped as the red liquid gushed down his arm. Several women swooned at the sight. To the shock of all, he spattered blood on the heads and bodies of the slave keepers. Benjamin prophesied a dark, violent future. Quakers who failed to heed the prophet's call must expect physical, moral, and spiritual death. The room exploded into chaos, but Benjamin stood quiet and still like a statue. Several Quakers quickly surrounded the armed soldier of God, picked him up, and carried him from the building. Benjamin did not resist, but he had made his point. As long as Quakers owned slaves, there would be no business as usual if Benjamin could help it. 
His brothers and sisters had made peace with the devil, so he used his body to disrupt their hypocritical, pious routines. The book is The Fearless Benjamin Lay by our guest Marcus Redeker. I guess that is a pretty good example of the theater of apocalyptic outrage, as you describe it. You've mentioned his abhorrence of enslavement, but you also started with the idea of how did he come to his beliefs. I I always have the trouble with saying radical, like saying um, people who say that someone is controversial. I'm I'm not saying you're doing this, but, uh, you know, frequently we refer to who is controversial. And the person who's controversial is never necessarily, at least in this society, the most racist. The one who's controversial is the one who opposes racism. (laughs) Right. You know, and so he here we have this this man this uh, who who suffers from dwarfism and he also has um uh, that condition where he has like a hump back and and he is his body is twisted with deformity but he's the one whose head is on really straight mm. You know, in in all of this. So how does he come to this awareness? Is it from his personal truth that he then can be in symbiotic connection with other people oppressed or what is it? Well, I've basically argued in the book that if we think of Benjamin Lay's worldview, how he saw the world, and of course the, the most important thing to him was the abolition of slavery. If we think of that, as a rope, it had four different strands to it. One of the strands was what I call radical Quakerism. Quakerism began during the English Revolution in the late 1650s, and it always had, it's always been understood to be the work of George Fox, the great founder, really, of the Quaker faith. But it turns out there was another leader of early Quakerism, a man named James Naylor, who was much more radical than Fox and who liked to perform dramatic street theater to make his protests, which were frequently about the principle of equality. So Benjamin Lay, he was someone who channeled that more radical side of the faith. So this is, this is one major uh, strand in the rope. A second is that Benjamin, this may be a little counterintuitive, Uh, worked as a sailor. He went to sea when he was uh, 21 years old, sailed around the world. And as he did so, he became part of the, uh, you might call it the the brotherhood of deep sea sailors. They had a very strong ethic of solidarity for each other. Part of the reason why was because uh, seafaring was a very dangerous occupation and you depended on your fellow sailors uh, in many, many circumstances. And so Benjamin uh, imbibed this ethic of solidarity, and then he applied it even more broadly to enslaved people. So seafaring culture is a second strand of the rope. The third strand is his very deep and personal knowledge of the struggles of enslaved Africans in Barbados. Now, Barbados, when Benjamin moved there in 1718, he lived there for about 18 months uh, with his wife, Sarah. Barbados was the leading slave society in the world, one of the wealthiest societies in the world because of the exploitation of slave labor. And what Benjamin saw was that torture, execution, hunger, violence were absolutely central to the institution of slavery. And he had a very human reaction, uh, befriending enslaved people. Uh, He and his wife ran a little shop on the waterfront and uh, enslaved people would come in. He and Sarah began to feed the hungry as a pastor would do. Uh, But he also then began to denounce the conditions of the lives of these enslaved people, 
which attracted the attention of the wealthy slave owners who then sought to banish Benjamin and Sarah from the island for preaching uh, what they considered to be revolutionary ideas that slavery must be ended. So this is the third strand uh, in, in this rope of Benjamin's radicalism, very deep knowledge of slavery itself. It was not an abstraction to him. He knew, he, in fact, a, a man he knew quite well uh, um, committed suicide uh, rather than face another whipping by the, the, the slave master. Uh, this had a very big uh, and profound effect on Benjamin. So that's the third strand. And the fourth is really kind of unusual and surprising. It turns out Benjamin, even though he was not well-educated, uh, he had he was mostly uh, self-educated and autodidact. And, and I suspect most of what he learned, he learned from his fellow sailors. He was a voracious reader and especially interested in ancient philosophy. So there was a school of philosophers in ancient Greece led by a man named Diogenes, who, like Benjamin, or should I say Benjamin, like them, practiced their philosophical ideas in public. And so Benjamin believed, following this group of philosophers, they were called the Cynics, following Diogenes, that the most important thing any thinker could do would be always to speak truth to power. You must speak truth to power. So Benjamin uh, took that lesson on board. And so in a, in a really kind of unusual way, this legacy of ancient philosophy is the fourth strand in this rope. And you put them all together and you have a man who knows about slavery, believes in solidarity, believes in equality, and believes that you must express your ideas and fight for them in public. And that is exactly what Benjamin Lay did in a time when most people of European descent accepted slavery without question. He came to exactly the opposite conclusion. So there is a kind of fascinating intellectual history from below behind Benjamin Lay's uh, radical ideas. When we come back, more with our guest, Marcus Redeker, his new book, the fearless Benjamin Lay. More after the break. You're listening to WJFF Radio Catskill, and we're listening to you. Fill out our listener survey and tell us how you listen, where you listen, and what you listen to. Find our survey on Facebook, Instagram, and at WJFFradio.org. Radio Catskill. Let your voice be heard. WJFF Radio Catskill is an essential resource in your life. Whether it's reliable information you can use, joyful music that inspires the community, Radio Catskill provides programming you rely on. You're an essential part of this station, too. Listeners provide the funding that keeps the news, information, and arts alive. I'm Angela Page, host of Folk Plus. Please donate now during our Summer Quiet Pledge Drive at WGFFradio.org. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Marcus Redeker. He is the author of the new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Marcus, we talked about Benjamin Lay as this abolitionist, but how did his the fact of his physicality actually impact his view and his work? It's a very important question, Janice. Uh, and, and although Benjamin himself did not talk about this much, it's clear that it was a very important part of who he was and how he saw the world. The truth that we must begin with is that Benjamin suffered a lot of discrimination for being a little person. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He actually mentions this in uh, a book he wrote, uh, how people would laugh at him. Now, he understood that as a little person, he was an object of derision, but he also understood that his radical ideas upset people 
uh, in a very serious way. So what I think matters most in terms of the relationship between uh, Benjamin's body, shall we say, and his ideas is that he basically spent his whole life fighting to be treated equally. And one of the reasons I think he was drawn to the Quakers was because of their really quite profound commitment to spiritual equality. So Benjamin took the Quakers up on that. He said, you believe in equality? You do believe in the golden rule of having people do unto you as you would do unto them? He said, well, let's practice that. This very point is extremely significant in terms of his reaction to enslavement. Because as someone who himself had been marginalized by others, as someone who uh, suffered persecution, discrimination, he developed a powerful empathy for others in the same circumstances. So there is really no doubt in my mind that in addition to the various things I mentioned earlier, the Quakerism, the seafaring, the experience in Barbados and ancient philosophy, we must add to that Benjamin's experience as a little person, which I think really drove him to a kind of identification with enslaved people and powered his commitment to make everyone equal. He really believed deeply in human equality, and he called out his fellow Quakers. Do you believe in it or don't you? So I think this is a, this is a very important point about who Benjamin was. The Quakers were essentially talking the talk, but they were not walking that walk. Exactly. And, and just to give you another example, uh, a lot of the Quakers that Benjamin knew in these meetings were not only slave owners, they were legislators for the colony of Pennsylvania. And one of his fellow Quakers had actually drawn up the Pennsylvania Slave Code, which prescribed all kinds of violent punishments. Well, how can a pacifist do that, Benjamin would want to know. He thought these slave owners were ruining Quakerism. So his fight was, was for equality for all people, but it was also a fight to save the soul of the faith he loved. What are his dates? Benjamin is born in 1682 uh, in uh, Essex, uh, the county of Essex in uh, England. It's about 50 miles or so to the uh, northeast of London. Um, he lives in London itself for a number of years when he's a sailor. He lives in Barbados, 1718 to 1720 goes back to England, and then he spends the last 27 years of his life in Philadelphia and the region there around. He passed away in the year 1759. So born in 1682, died in 1759, and considered himself an opponent of slavery for 40 years. He's born in England in 1682. Into what kind of society is he born? Well, one important thing to know is that Benjamin was, and this is quite unusual, a third-generation Quaker. His grandparents had converted to Quakerism really when it came to his native Essex. They, they left the Church of England and became Quakers. Uh, both his mother and his father had been born into Quaker families. And so Benjamin was a third-generation Quaker, but as it turns out, he was much more devout and committed to Quakerism than his previous generations. I think this may have something to do with the dwarfism and mm -hmm. the commitment to equality. Uh, but he was born into a humble family. He had very little uh, schooling. He was, uh, he, he actually has some very nice passages uh, in his book describing how much he liked being a shepherd. Uh, the, the, the textile industry was very big in his native Essex, and he loved being a shepherd. Uh, he loved sheep, and this is, uh, this is one thing he recalls very fondly. But his background was that of a, an ordinary, humble person. Uh, he was not an elite in any sense. And uh, whatever he learned about the world was really the result of his own hard work. Just a, as a quick aside, it's making me wonder, a shepherd, how then does that comport with his stance on vegetarianism and how animals are treated? Where does that come in? 
Yes, I think that's a, that's a really important point. Benjamin had a lifelong love of animals, and I think a lot of people who grew up on farms do that. Um, but I think his his love of sheep is completely of a piece with the belief that will develop later that we must not harm our fellow creatures. One of Benjamin's favorite books was uh, uh, written by a man named Thomas Tryon, and he was considered to be one of the founding fathers of vegetarianism. Uh, it was said that Benjamin loved this book so much he would carry it with him wherever he went. So I do believe that his background uh, in a, on a family farm and as a shepherd uh, and the love of animals that that engendered, that this contributed to his later decision, not only to become a vegetarian, but to become one of the early spokespeople for animal rights. Interesting. We have spoken about Benjamin Lay's passion and how it brings him to his work. Let me ask you about your passion. What brought you to this area of work? Janice, I, I am a child of the social movements of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, at that time, uh, um, a great many people of my generation felt that the history we had been taught, uh, a history that had grown up in the repressive atmosphere of Cold War America, a history that left all of the rebels out, left people of African descent out, left women out, uh, left workers out. Uh, we wanted a different kind of history. And in fact, it was those social movements that demanded a new history. It was the civil rights movement and the black power movement, for example, that demanded a new history of America that took race and slavery seriously. So, so basically, I became a historian uh, in an effort to answer that demand, to write the history of people who had been left out of the history books in the past. So this is what uh, I and many others called history from below, the ordinary working people. So I've written a book about sailors. I've written another book about pirates. I've written books about rebels of different kinds, about the Amistad. Uh, revolt about the people who rose up on slave ships. And Benjamin Lay is actually someone that I discovered about 20 years ago while working on a different book. And the more I learned about him, the more I saw that he was a fascinating figure who, who really deserved his own book. So that's how I came to work on him. But the, the consistency of my life's work is that it's really all about ordinary working people who have changed the course of history, but only recently have been acknowledged and recognized for that. Speaking of more recent acknowledgement and, and recognition, I was fascinated reading the book about his relationship to his wife, Sarah, who you say was also a little person. Yes, uh, Sarah is a fascinating figure. I my only regret is that I wish I could have learned more about her. Uh, Sarah was, uh, like Benjamin, born into a working-class family. Uh, she lived in London, and she lived right on the Thames River. And my guess is, there's no real evidence about this, that she probably met Benjamin when he was working as a sailor. He had, I would imagine, come to the Quaker meeting of Deptford, where uh, Sarah lived, and I, I think that's how they, they met. Uh, all of the surviving evidence suggests that Sarah Lay was a very powerful woman. She was a person of great spiritual power. She was known as a speaker, um, a beloved member of the Quaker community, and one who was trusted to carry the Quaker message to other meetings. She was also uh, very deeply committed to the principles of abolition, just like Benjamin. She did have the tact and the grace not to antagonize people as much as Benjamin did. <laughs> so she, she was never disowned, but her beliefs and her actions were really critical to his life. It was, for example, the experience that Benjamin and Sarah together had in Barbados that moved both of them towards this lifelong opposition to slavery. 
So I think of uh, Sarah Lay as a spiritually powerful and highly principled person. Unfortunately, she predeceased Benjamin by uh, 24 years. He lived without her in great pain, I might add, mm. for her absence. Uh, but she was certainly a, a stellar part of his life and of early Quakerism. By 24 years, she predeceases him. So is he, therefore, even more alone in much of this work that he's trying to do? I think there's no doubt that with the death of Sarah in 1735, uh, he was more alone. Uh, there's no question about that. But Benjamin himself, when he talks about his anti-slavery ministry, has two ways of talking about it. Sometimes he talks about it as if he is the lone and courageous prophet and the only one who really understands these things. And that's, of course, the way prophets always are, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to get everybody else to go along with you. But at other times, Benjamin uh, says that he knows that a lot of people agree with him. A lot of his fellow Quakers feel exactly as he does, but they were afraid to speak out against the rich Quakers who were the leaders of the Quaker meeting and, in fact, of the whole political system of Pennsylvania. So a lot of his uh, activism and guerrilla theater was meant to encourage other ordinary Quakers like himself, himself to speak up and speak out. And it is precisely in the years when Benjamin is the leading opponent of slavery that the heart and minds of the Quaker rank and file begin to change. And it's really in the 1750s that things kind of take off. And then by 1776, the Quakers become the first group in the world to outlaw slavery in their own midst. Speaking truth to power, speaking truth to one's own sense of self, it's, it's really quite a story. The Fearless Benjamin Lay is the book that we're discussing with author Marcus Redeker when we come back. New songs, new tunes of the life of traditional and contemporary folk music. Next time on the Wagalola Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF, another hour of recent releases in support of artists not able to play gigs in these troubled times. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at 3. Hello, I'm Thane Peterson, host of WJFF's Living Jazz Show. I've been asked to talk to you about how WJFF is an essential resource in our lives. I think most listeners know that. However, surveys show that only a tiny fraction of the people who listen to public radio give to public radio. Don't be one of those. Please consider a contribution to our Summer Quiet Pledge Drive at WJFFradio.org. You'll feel good about it if you do. I promise. We're back with our guest, Marcus Redeker. He's the author of the book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. I just want to preface this a little bit. Benjamin Lay was a ferocious opponent of slavery, but he also had many other ideas that meant a great deal to him. And these included, for example, vegetarianism. He believed that it was wrong for human beings to kill and eat animals. And he believed that a lot of the violence in the world, the warfare, grew directly out of the violence that human beings committed against the animal world. He also refused, and in this he was the first, he refused to consume any item that was produced by slave labor or even exploited labor tobacco, sugar. He said, we must be aware of the conditions under which these things were produced. That's really the same idea in the present day uh, of the global anti-sweatshop movement. So Benjamin Lay is thinking and doing these things almost 300 years ago. So I'd like to read a, a couple of more paragraphs in the book to give your listeners a, a greater sense, a fuller sense of his guerrilla theater. Benjamin began to stage public protests against the men of renown 
to shock the friends of Philadelphia into awareness of their own moral failings about slavery. Conscious of the hard, exploited labor that went into making seemingly benign commodities, such as tobacco and sugar, Benjamin showed up at a Quaker yearly meeting with three large tobacco pipes stuck in his bosom. He sat between the galleries of men and women elders and ministers. As the meeting ended, he rose in indignant silence and dashed one pipe among the men ministers, one among the women ministers, and the third among the congregation assembled. With each smashing blow, Benjamin protested slave labor, luxury, and the poor health caused by smoking the stinking sotweed. He sought to awaken his brothers and sisters to the politics of the smallest, seemingly most insignificant choices. When winter rolled in, Benjamin used a recent snowfall to make a point to Quaker slave owners. He stood on a Sunday morning at a gateway to the Quaker meeting house, knowing all friends would pass his way. He left his right leg and foot entirely uncovered and placed them in the snow. Like the ancient philosopher Diogenes, who also walked barefoot in snow, he again sought to shock his contemporaries into awareness. One Quaker after another took notice and expressed concern, urging Benjamin not to expose himself to the freezing cold. He would surely get sick. Benjamin listened carefully to their words and then replied, Ah, you pretend compassion for me, but you do not feel for the poor slaves in your fields who go all winter half clad. He made two points. First, anyone without proper clothing in cold weather deserved compassion. Second, Quakers were not practicing a maxim central to their faith drawn from Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So saith Benjamin the prophet. On another occasion, Benjamin called one morning on an unnamed gentleman of considerable note who politely invited him to sit down to breakfast with him and his family. As, began, as Benjamin began to take his place at the table, he saw a man of African descent appear at the door of the dining room to serve the meal. Benjamin turned somberly to his acquaintance and asked, Dost thou keep any Negro slaves in thy family? The gentleman answered, Yes, he did indeed keep slaves. Benjamin pushed back, and stood up from the table. He announced, Then I will not partake with thee of the fruits of thy unrighteousness. Benjamin would have no intercourse with those who owned slaves. He walked out. When we look back on history, people often say, well, these things take time. From the time of Benjamin Lay's admonitions and warnings, how could it take more than a century for the Emancipation Proclamation? Here's Marcus. Well, Janice, as you know, prophets, the, a, a real prophet, a real person who can see the future, these people are frequently ignored. They, they bring up uncomfortable truths. So it, to me, it's extraordinary that Benjamin Lay in the 1730s is saying things that it's going to take another 130, 150, 180 uh, years or more to begin to be taken seriously and addressed. This to me is, uh, this is what makes him a visionary. He understood these things early on. He understood that slavery was going to be a curse to America. And it would take a very long time to get over it. And the longer you let this institution go on, the harder it will be ever to recover from it. So, so in my view, Benjamin was just plain right about that. I mean, and he saw it so clearly so many years before other people. But there's another point here, which we must acknowledge, uh, Janice, 
Uh, one of uh, Benjamin Lay's fellow Quakers, a man named Anthony Benazay, another leader of the anti-slavery movement, who was younger than Benjamin and kind of picked up the torch and an that educator. Benjamin carried. He lived through the era of the American Revolution. Mm. And he saw that everybody was talking about the ideas of liberty. And Benjamin, ben, excuse me, and Anthony Benazay said, well, we're going to see how far the idea of liberty will go. Do people love liberty enough to end slavery? Because this was all being proclaimed in a slave society. And then what he said at the end of the war, it turns out the love of gain was greater than the love of liberty. The profits produced by the slave system outweighed the humanitarian ideals of people like Lay and Benazay. And so it took actually a civil war to try to bring liberty to another part of the country. Liberty as well to another American estate called the press, which I'm, I opened the book just now um, and it opened to page 107 and there it was, Liberty of the Press and um, Benjamin Lay's relationship with defending the press. And of course, as we are recording this, we have just gone through um, a series of outrageous attacks by this American administration, the Trump administration, on the press, even to the point of excusing Saudi Arabia for not only orchestrating the death of a, of a journalist, but sending 15 people to kill and dismember him. And mm -hmm. our president is giving that a pass in the name of expedience and economics, mm -hmm. which all brings us to the question, and in a way I'm saying it, so why are we talking about Benjamin Lay even today and... There we are. Yes. No, he, he, you're absolutely right, Janice. He, he saw all this. And, and another thing I would just mention is that Benjamin Lay, in his own lifetime, had problems with censorship because the, these wealthy Quakers had a committee that oversaw all publications. They would not allow any anti-slavery materials to be published in Benjamin's day. So he had to go around their back to to publish his book, All Slave Keepers Apostates, which was a quite uh, powerful attack on Quaker slave owners and others. He had to print that privately to get around the censorship. So when the debate about the uh, John Peter Zenger uh, uh, controversy, which happened in New York in 1733-34, when that broke out, Benjamin joined the newspaper debate to say that the uh, Freedom of speech was one of the most important things that we must have. And of course, how can you speak truth to power without it? This was one of the fundamental ideas of his life. You must always speak truth to power. And this requires freedom of speech in order to be able to do that. It's as urgent today as it was in his own time. And his printer publisher is none other than? <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. I dare say your listeners will have heard of this Benjamin, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. And, and there is one funny story about this, because Benjamin Lay was um, not always the most organized thinker. He sometimes uh, wrote in a kind of stream of consciousness. So when the story is that when he approached uh, Benjamin Franklin and asked him, would he please publish this uh, manuscript as a book, uh, to his credit, Benjamin Franklin said yes, even though it might have not been in his own interest to do so because the attack on the wealthy Quakers was going to cause controversy. But Franklin looked at these pages and pages and pages of manuscript and said, what am I supposed to do with this? And Benjamin Lay says, I don't care. Publish it in any order you want. So, uh, and, and Benjamin Franklin did actually try to edit the manuscript and create a little more coherence. He did not, Franklin, put his name as the printer on the cover page, though, in order to protect himself a little bit from what would no doubt, no doubt be some angry, wealthy Quakers. But then he did again later in life, Franklin uh, 
really, he, he boasted, or let's just say he took pride in having published Benjamin Lay's book at a time when that was very controversial. I want to ask you something that, that has been kind of gnawing at me since I read the book, read what what some of the issues that Benjamin Lay brought to the fore were, his absolute conscience and fervor and sense of right and wrong, but he does emigrate to these colonies. And the question is, if he comes with that belief, why does he come to a place where essentially the people that he's dealing with are part of the normalization and institutionalization in the forefront, actually, not only of racism, but of the colonization and genocide that is going on at that time against indigenous peoples, the Algonquin, the Cherokee, the Shinnecock, the Sioux. What is his take on that? Well, now, the first thing I would emphasize, uh, Janice, is that I don't think Benjamin knew exactly what was happening in Pennsylvania before he got here. In other words, he thought that when Quakers really had the power to organize their own colony, which Pennsylvania as a giant land grant uh, from uh, the king to the Penn family enabled them to do, he thought, well, they will institutionalize Quaker values. They will create equality. They will do everything the right way based on their spiritual values. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived in Philadelphia and saw slavery, about one out of every 11 people in Philadelphia was enslaved when Benjamin arrived in 1732. He was furious. He felt like this was that, that the whole Quaker uh, faith had been forsaken and undermined. And so this is actually the, the contradiction is exactly what drove his activism. Now, with regard to Native America, uh, we don't know a lot of what Benjamin thought, but we do know this much. Benjamin was very proud of the fact that the Quakers were the only group who made a treaty with the Native American people and never broke it. In fact, Voltaire, the great French Enlightenment philosopher, remarked years later that the Quaker treaty with the Native Americans in Pennsylvania was the only treaty that had never been broken. So the fact that the Quaker land, at least some of it, was acquired in a peaceful way, Benjamin was proud of that. Now, he already, within his lifetime, would have seen uh, many people, most of them actually non-Quakers, moving into Indian territory and seizing new land. I can't imagine that he would have liked that. We do know that one of the people who was, uh, shall we say, uh, an acolyte of Benjamin, someone that he trained, played a leading role among the later Quaker generations in trying to foster friendship between European settlers and Native Americans and to resist violent incursions against their land. But, but Benjamin, uh, in the main, saw that to the extent that violence was part of the history of America, whether that was uh, Native America or African America, there was going to be an unbelievably heavy price to pay for future generations. Benjamin's prophecy speaks to our time. He predicted that for Quakers and for America, slave-keeping would be a long, destructive burden. It will be as the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps in the end, or I am mistaken. As it happens, the poison and the venom have had long lives indeed, down to the present, as we still live with the consequences of slavery. Prejudice, poverty, deep structural inequality, and premature death. Just as tellingly, Benjamin counseled his readers to beware rich men who poison the world for gain. Despite his prophecy, Earth has grown sicker since Benjamin's day, which makes it easier now to hear his message. It may have taken more than two and a half centuries, 
but it seems that the world is finally beginning to catch up with the prophet's radical, far-reaching ideas through a growing, if far from universal, environmental consciousness. Benjamin Lay was, in some, a class-conscious, gender-conscious, race-conscious, environmentally-conscious, vegetarian, ultra-radical. Most readers of this book would think this combination of beliefs possible only since the 1960s, two full centuries after Lay's remarkable life ended. He lived the principles that today animate a global movement against shops whose logo adorned clothing and shoes disguise the horrific conditions under which workers produce them. As the first person to boycott slave-produced commodities, Benjamin pioneered the politics of consumption and initiated a tactic that would become central to the ultimate success of abolition in the 19th century. In his time, Benjamin may have been the most radical person on the planet. He helps us to understand what was thinkable and what was politically and morally possible in the first half of the 18th century and what may be possible now. It was more than we thought. In your book and the acknowledgement, you say, I dedicate this book to them, meaning your children, with love and with hope. As you have gone through the process of researching, writing, and delivering this book to us as your audience, where are you now? What are you thinking? And what makes you hopeful? Well, one of the things that makes me extremely hopeful, Janice, is a set of things that have happened since the book was published. And this, I think, has been quite remarkable. You know, I gave a lecture at the place where Benjamin had been a, a member of the Quaker meeting, Abington. And at the end of the lecture, my challenge to the congregation was to say, look, after all these years, you know Benjamin was right about this matter of slavery, and you must reinstate him. You, you disowned him. You've got to take him back. Well, this produced a debate and a discussion among the Quakers uh, after that lecture, and it became very kind of difficult and complicated because they discovered that there is no way for Quakers to readmit the dead. Hmm. So I came back after the book was published, gave another talk, and I sort of felt that the mood had changed. And soon after that, uh, the Quakers did create a declaration uh, unanimously agreed to, as is the Quaker way, in which they declared Benjamin Lay a friend of the truth, and they declared their own unity with his spirit. So basically, they were re-embracing him, taking him back into the congregation. Uh, the same thing happened in one of the London congregations where Benjamin had been disowned, and then subsequently, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, which had been the, the major source of opposition to Benjamin's ideas, endorsed the minute of the Abington Monthly Meeting. And so now three of the four groups who disowned Benjamin have taken him back. I find this very, very hopeful. The change is possible. People increasingly want to remember Benjamin Lay. They want to make him part of our past our present, and our future. Uh, so I think this is, uh, this is something that I know it would have really mattered to Benjamin to be re-embraced by his Quaker brothers and sisters. Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Dr. Marcus Redeker. And this update, since our taping, all four congregations that once expelled Benjamin Lay have now reinstated him to the Quaker fold thanks to Marcus's work and persistence. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Support comes from RM Farm Real Estate, Main Street, Livingston Manor, New York. Listing and selling properties of all sizes and prices in Sullivan County and surrounding areas. RMFarmRealEstate.com. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. 
Food is a great connector, and each week on our show, we bring you stories that exemplify the ways food can connect us to each other and our communities. From serious issues like mental health, sustainability, and food waste on one hand, to the really practical things like getting the best tortillas or learning to forage for food, food is at the center of all of our conversations. That's the splendid table from APM American Public Media. Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. We are your community radio station, and it's just about time for all things considered this afternoon. So thank you so much for joining us here on your community radio station.